You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 32. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, Wellness Insiders. I hope you're doing very well. Have you ever wondered how science of plants compares with the conventional medical research? And what is the connection between the two? Other conventional scientists that follow the path of studying plants. My today's guest is Dr. Kevin Spellman. Kevin began his practice as a clinical herbalist specializing in Ayurvedic medicine. One of his unique qualities is his ability to look at plants from several different perspectives. He's a trained principal scientist with experience in research models and laboratory setups and quality control and product development and formulation. And yet, at the same time, he enjoys exploring energy patterns and understand mystical presence of plants. Some of Kevin's recent projects include immunological effects of medicinal plants, affordable remedies in the treatment of malaria, pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic considerations of medicinal plant extracts, and effects of adaptogens on stress parameters. Kevin is a lecturer at several different universities and colleges, including Maryland University of Integrative Health, Bastyr University, and MCPHS University. Talking to Kevin is a special gift for me. I feel like a kid in a candy shop with many parallel thoughts running through my head as he's sharing his brilliant ideas. By the end of this episode, you learn about the complexity of science of plants, but the biggest takeaways are appreciating plants and including them into your life in many different forms and really truly recognizing your body's immense wisdom. I know you will love this conversation. Enjoy. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing? Good. Hi, Lana. Thanks for having me. Delighted and thrilled to have you. Welcome to the podcast. I would like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you become interested in plants and in herbal medicine? You know, that's a great question. And it started for me really early. Um, as a young man, I had, a, I had an experience with a physician and I, I have chronic back pain even to this day. Um, and it started when I was, when I was a child, I think I was seven or eight years old and I had this chronic pain in my mid back and my dad took me to a orthopedic doc and he basically barely looked at my back and, um, barely talked to me and basically told my, t told me and my father, he said, well, take aspirin. And I felt at eight years old, I felt incredibly invalidated, but and didn't really have enough language to be able to respond intelligently to, hey, wh what the heck? <laughs> you, you didn't even touch me. I, 
Um, so it started right then. I, I developed actually a, a mistrust of the medical system. And so probably by the time I was in my 16, 17, 18 year old, late teens, I started looking into, into health and got really intensively into it in my early twenties. Um, and then from there ended up studying Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, and I feel very strongly that I was guided there. Uh, it, it was a magical happening that got me there. I was going to go into acupuncture and, and that, that, didn't end up happening and ended up being Ayurvedic medicine. Tell us a little um, bit about what Ayurvedic medicine is and why you were drawn to it. So Ayurvedic medicine is a, is considered the oldest formalized system of medicine on the planet. And it is uh, Ayurveda basically translates as the science of life. And as such, it really uh, guides, it's a roadmap to staying healthy through all ages and through all climates and through all uh, jobs that you might end up with, all, all stress conditions. Um, and I remember early on calling my parents. I think I was in the second semester of uh, study, and I called them and I said, you know, this is stuff that they should be teaching in grade school because mm -hmm. it was so, so basic in terms of understanding health in a way that I'd never had anybody lay out, you know, these are the things that affect your health, and this is what you can do for that. So Ayurvedic medicine is this great map, this roadmap to um, staying healthy in a uh, crazy world, in, in, in my opinion. That's how I would define it, honestly. Sure. And so what was, uh, you know, how did your journey evolve? How did you end up from studying Ayurvedic medicine to learning more about biology to doing all these other things? Right. So... Um, I actually started the Ayurvedic program with no intentions at all of becoming a practitioner. But Dr. Vasant Ladd inspired me so deeply and profoundly that I decided by the end of the program that I really wanted to practice. Now, I was not at that point, I didn't have any formal education. And so I dived into school um, at the age of I think I was 28 and uh, started started studying the sciences. And and I <laughs> And the counselors had a little bit of a hard time with me because they were like, well, so what are you going to study? And I was like, no, what are you going to, what what's your degree going to be? And I said, um, I don't want a degree. I just want to study science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was a little naive. And um, um, long story short, I graduated with a biochemistry degree okay. Uh, okay. Eight, year, eight years later because I kept leaving the country and living out of the country for periods of time, which uh, was a great education in itself. And then went into practicing and, and practiced shoulder-to-shoulder uh, -shoulder with a doc for many years in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and ran a, a clinic called the Clinic of Collaborative Medicine. And was so inspired by what I was seeing in terms of results with patients, um, practicing a really a westernized version of Ayurvedic medicine, westernized being that I was using Western herbs for the most part. I was definitely using some Ayurvedic herbs, but it, it only made sense to me that we would want to be using western herbs uh, in the west and so i translated that knowledge of ayurvedic medicine and, th and that system of understanding uh drugs is what they would translate it as but really medicinal plants and nutrients and that sort of thing i translated that into western language and started using western plants and then at some point because of the because of the results i was seeing i felt like i needed to understand it better and what ended up happening from there is I started a, a master's program and 
realized fairly quickly that I was never going to finish it if I kept practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I was running back. I was literally running back and forth from campus to the clinic, and and uh, that in itself was um, was quite an education for me in terms of what's personally possible for someone. Um, I I stepped away from the master's program and practiced a couple more years, and then I I was I just had it. I uh, I decided that um, after being drafted to start a master's program in herbal medicine mm-hmm. um, at at now Maryland University of Integrative Health, I decided that this was the time to, I was teaching at a master's level and I only had a bachelor's degree and therefore I should really make an effort to raise my education level. So I started a PhD in in biology, specialized in molecular biology, um, ended up uh, taking a fellowship at, at some point, a research fellowship in Paris um, and studied malaria for a while. And then went to the National Institutes of Health, uh, National Institute on Aging specifically, and uh, worked on cancer and brain cancer and ovarian cancer. And actually, interestingly, cannabinoid, uh, little did I know, uh, cannabinoid, uh, uh, endocannabinoid system, cannabinoid signaling. Um, And it turns out that my PhD work, now we know what I was working on was actually part of the endocannabinoid system. So um, that's a long story short to how I, how I got to, uh, having a PhD in uh, molecular biology and really specializing on medicinal plants. And it's really fascinating that on one hand, you're thinking, okay, molecular biology. And on another hand, like when I'm looking at a lot of the papers that you have published, most of them, you're looking at dandelion, or you're looking at echinacea, or you're looking at fenugreek, you're looking at a lot of these plants, medicinal plants that we're very familiar with. And so how are you drawn? How are you able to look at them from a very, very unique perspective? Because a typical practitioner will look at them uh, as a clinician. This is what these things do. But you have this very different, very unique interest in digging deeper and really understanding how they act on specific systems in your body. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, thanks. That's, that's a nice compliment. Um, bilateral, uh, bilateral brain function. Uh, <laughs> I, I use both sides of my brain. Let me just tell you what I mean by that. So sure. I really come from an Ayurvedic perspective when it comes to plants. I really see them in an energetic way. And I truly believe that energy medicine or understanding energetics is the next major breakthrough in medicine. I do not think it's going to be chemical. I think the next major breakthrough is going to be energetics. And we've already got TENS units and even uh, magnetic fields now that treat depression and this sort of thing. I think there's a lot there that we need to understand. Eastern philosophies very much come from that energetic perspective. So that's one side of my brain. The other side of my brain, I do think at a molecular level. And I, when, I'm, when I used to sit with people, I would be thinking about um, MOAs and how a molecule from a plant or many molecules from a plant usually would be affecting someone's psoriasis or someone's... Um, uh, asthma, you know, whatever, whatever it was. And so that in itself, <laughs> that in itself for a time made me a little crazy because, um, those days when I was running from the clinic and then running back to a lab, you know, where a lab where one drop would make a huge difference in, in your outcome and your results and your grade, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas sitting in a clinic and really connecting with somebody on a very personal and intimate level, 
where you're listening to the issues in their life and starting to understand the, the field of their life, the, the energy of their life, um, which, which would be an Ayurvedic perspective. So that's, that's really how, how I've approached plants. And I, I had a really extraordinary experience in, in the mountains of Oaxaca. I, I lived in Latin America for a year. Um, and at, in that time, I met a wonderful um, adivino or shaman, uh, brujo, named Don Lupe. And Don Lupe really taught me about, <laughs> about understanding plants. Um, I went through a, a ceremony with him where mushrooms are passed around to alter your perception. And at some point, he just suddenly turned it to me in this, uh, in this ceremony that he was doing and looked at me deep in the eyes. He didn't even know me. He just looked at me and said, you know, many, many plants. And I would seen him do so many remarkable things <laughs> since that, uh, since that ceremony had begun that I, uh, I felt like I didn't know anything. So, I, you know, I was just like kind of shaking my head. I don't know anything. And he said, he looked at me and he said, do you know how we learn the plants? And I said, no, how, how do you learn the plants? And he said to me, the plants tell us mm-hmm. how to. Use them. Um, and I felt at that point about 15 years of, of study drain out my feet, right? Right in the moment, <laughs> because my thought at the moment was, of course, what a brilliant way to understand plants. Let them tell you how to use them. So uh, that was really the um, that was really the magic there that that uh, spurred me on to study more. And indeed, I ended up in a molecular studying at a molecular level. But I do think there's a way of understanding molecules. It's not just about uh, carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen, but really in a way of understanding them as waves and not particles. It's it's really fascinating. The story is fascinating. Um, I remember when I started studying plants, and one of my teachers, David Winston, he is very well known for his um, very balanced and very science-based approach to plants. And yet the next thing that happened, he was talking about spirits of plants and how plants are going to teach you. And I remember that it really took me some time to, to, to really understand what he's talking about. So how do plants talk to people? What, what do you think you were taught to understand? How, how do they communicate, whether their purpose or whether they're, they're used? Or what can we do for plants? Well, you, so you, I, love where, I love where you're headed here. And I'm going to take, take two steps back from please. that question. And I'm going to say, let's talk about ways of knowing. Yes, please. Right? Because science is a way of knowing. Yes. But so is personal experience. Mm-hmm. So is intuition. So is, or some people would say, uh, psychic ability. And so, and by the way, uh, IONS, Institute of Noetic Sciences, has done some very rigorous uh, trials on whether or not psychic phenomena actually exist, whether or not people can know things without ever having met someone or, you know, depending on the model. And definitely shown a ability for for psychic phenomena to exist so so that in itself is very interesting and then there's also in terms of ways of knowing there's also tradition and one of the things that i've seen happen to a lot of my colleagues and uh, i may be getting some angry letters here in a few in, <laughs> in a few days here but um one of the things i've seen that's happened to my colleagues is that they have let science block all other ways of knowing mm. 
Now, I am a scientist by, by trade, by what I do in my daily life, but I also know that science is only one way of knowing. And I think it's really important that we allow other ways of being. And it, it seems to me that we are raised in the West especially, but, but not just in the West, but we are often raised in a way where there is only one way of knowing. And, and so if you look back into ancient cultures, the people that were often looked up to for answers were usually spiritual masters or priests or something like that. For our culture in the West, it's really become scientist in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I not to not to uh, say anything negative about that. I do think we should follow sciences, but what ends up happening is some, oftentimes we end up losing that way of knowing that might be related to intuition or even personal experience. And so I think that's a really key a piece. And so if we sit with plants and we listen, we may hear nothing. And that will probably happen to most people out there. But I think there are people that um, have special abilities that get more information than the person that hears nothing. <laughs> and uh, there may be ways of doing that, which may involve entheogens. But I, I do believe that there's uh, more than just science out there that, that can guide our path. Fascinating. You know, it's it's interesting to me because I don't think in terms of uh, when I look at the intuition, when I look at people's ability to foresee the future, perhaps um, some of these things sound way out there. But at the same time, if you start reading some of the books written by futurists and people that are describing things that are so similar to what you see 20, 30 years down the road, you wonder, it's not that it just happened. So there is this ability to see certain different planes and certain different worlds. And so why is it completely impossible to also see this in terms of the plants and medicinal plants uh, as well? All right. Agreed. Yeah. So... um, few years back, you gave a keynote address at the conference that I attended. And um, I remember leaving the uh, lecture, leaving uh, the hall, thinking how amazingly beautiful you may, you put it together. So uh, the your presentation was about plants and what they actually do to human body. And how is it that uh, we have all these different molecular structures that are affecting our physiology in such a gentle and kind way um, that are not necessarily producing very harsh and very strong effects, but produce very, uh, very gentle effects. So you I also remember you talking a lot about co-evolution, and I really would love you to talk a little bit about these concepts. Well, f- first, let's let's start with the the concept of evolutionary medicine. There's sure. actually a term out there, and I haven't I haven't uh, typed it into PubMed recently. But at one point, there were like three or four hundred hits, and that was probably ten or fifteen years ago. And evolutionary medicine is basically this idea of looking where, looking at where we've come from, um, and from there tying that those patterns of Paleolithic humans into disease processes and and health uh, health needs. And so, 
that is what really tipped me off to looking at plants in a in a more biolog bi modern biological way where where you know there's a there's a phrase put out by Dobinsky that's really very famous and it says nothing makes sense in biology if it's not seen under the lens of evolution and and so I, I took that challenge and I looked at plants from an evolutionary perspective and one of the things we see very quickly is not only have plants fed us and have we used them as medicine, but they've been our clothing, they've been our shelter, they've been our paper, they've, been, they've, they've affected every area of our life. When you come back to what's, what we eat and, and using them as medicine, you start to quickly see that, for instance, um, it's very possible and it seems highly likely to me, and I haven't seen a lot of writing on this, and maybe that's, maybe that's my work in old age is, is to write on this, but it's, it seems very possible that our biochemical and molecular structure, our molecular signaling has very much evolved around plants, around phytochemicals, around plant compounds that come from uh, compounds that come from plants. And, and I think that that's very true. If, if you just look at receptors, for instance, you know, we've got uh, capsaicin and the trip receptors. We got ergot and the dopamine receptors. We got um, uh, ca cannabis or cannabinoids and the cannabinoid receptors. And you can list probably ten or twelve different receptors that are that are keyed in to, to very uh, uh, common uh, plant medicines, plant plant chemicals, plant plant phytochemicals. Um, so that in itself makes you stop and think. Well. If, if receptors had an evolution to themselves, which clearly they do, but nobody's really written much about it, how did they evolve? And it seems to me that the, the receptors on from the very early cells evolved because they were kept getting bombarded by phytochemicals in their environment. And when they got bombarded by them, slowly they adapted. And by adapting to them, they literally created a protein structure that could catch these phytochemicals. And when they caught those phytochemicals, as a receptor would, it changed something inside the cell. It created a signal. It created a difference. It created a action inside the cell. And so we came to depend on that action, that message from outside external sources. And clearly, from a big perspective, if we're not paying attention to our environment, if we're not tuned into our environment, we are not going to survive no matter what environment we're talking about, right? Whether it's, you know, living in the jungle uh, barefooted or living in the city in Manhattan and, you know, carrying a, a Gucci purse. Either way, you're going to need to pay attention to what's around you to be, to be a successful human, whether that means staying alive or whether that means, you know, having a family and, and passing on your genes. So I think plants have played a huge role in that in that. Uh, evolution of humans, but not just humans, clearly all life. And we have just conveniently overlooked that. And so what happens for me, that next step is really about sustainability. What are we doing to the planets? How many species of plants are we actually losing daily? Because the number that I know of is we're losing about a plant species a day wow. in terms of forever gone. And so what did we what have we lost? What kind of messaging, what kind of signaling 
potential have we lost with those plants when they when they die out? And I, I would have to say, are we losing the cure for HIV? Are we losing cures for cancer? Are we losing um, something that can strongly attenuate Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease? And you know, if you look at the if you look at the research in terms of neuroprotective effects of plants, there's a lot of plants that are really well studied that show that there's really profound neuroprotective effects. And so tracing that back to diet and looking at how people extend their, I'm going to use a term here, organ reserve, Mm -hmm. the idea that we can preserve the function of different tissues and organs in our body by staying healthy. But how do we stay healthy? Well, it looks very strongly from data, epidemiological data, that the more phytochemicals you have in your diet, the longer you live. Um, flavonoids, for instance, the, the uh, risk of heart disease goes back, depend, goes down, excuse me, depending on how many flavonoids you have in your diet. The risk of strokes go down depending on how many flavonoids you have in your diet. So we can, we can trace this out by following a number of different phytochemicals. But we eat every day. We, every day we have a chance to nudge our genome every day that we eat, right? And it depends on which direction we're nudging that genome, right? So if we're eating fast food, you're turning genes on and off from that fast food, from, the, from whatever's in there. And I'm going to say there's not a lot of phytochemistry in that fast food. You're turning genes on and off that might be better served to be just the opposite, off and on rather than on and off, right? So another five, five genes that go on and, and four that go off, or, or it's probably actually more in the 400s or 500s, uh, looking at the stuff I've seen with medicinal plants turning on uh, genomic um, uh, uh, activity. So I think we have this huge opportunity to recognize how important plants are to us. And that, again, comes back to what are we doing to our planet? Are, are we going are we killing ourselves by wiping out the 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 life the biodiversity um, on the planet I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there and let you uh, so so there are a couple of things that I wanted to follow up on uh, so one of them uh, you were uh, talking about flavonoids and for someone that might be listening who might not know some of the sources of uh, bioflavonoids could you give us uh, a couple and then the uh, other elements is you're uh, comparing a let, let's say a fast food uh, meal where you have very few phytochemicals phytonutrients versus a meal that is rich in uh, phytonutrients um, and so what really comes to my mind is that if you are consuming whole plant, right, that you are getting exposed to so many different uh, ingredients, so many different constituents. And so very often people would go for specific um, supplements or specific extracts or things where there is just a few, a small number, where, whether it is a curcumin or whether it is something else. Um, could you also talk about uh, those things as well? So flavonoids first, and then there's the biodiversity and the complexity. Right. So let, let me just start by, by throwing in another, another factoid here, and, and that is that uh, chronic disease constitutes about 78% of all healthcare expenditures right now in, our, in, our, in the West anyway. And I truly believe that this is because of our diets. And I think that a lot of epidemiologists, I think that Walter Willett at Harvard 
would completely agree with me here. And so it's about what we're putting in. And we're not putting in phytochemical-rich um, diets. So flavonoids are part of that, but just a small part of that. But flavonoids are very interesting. Basically, they're plant pigments. And these plant pigments come from a number of different fruits and vegetables. Citrus is rich in flavonoids. Uh, berries are rich in another type of flavonoids. Um, there are many uh, yellow and orangish fruits that are really rich in flavonoids. And so being that plant pigment. So one of the things I used to tell um, clients when I was practicing is to look down at their plates. And if they saw white, gray, and brown, they were in trouble. <laughs> but if they saw greens and purples and reds and, and orange, that that was a diet that was anti-aging. It was anti-cardiovascular disease. It was uh, anti-neurodegenerative. Um, it, it was you know, anti-asthma. It, it, it basically, you were, you were strumming your genome in a way that was positive, in a way that our ancestors knew. But when we do that with fast food, we're really in a place where it's new. We have no evolutionary precedent to understand. Our, our, our genome has no evolutionary precedent to understand the signaling that comes from fast food. And there's, a, I mean, you know, we could go through tons and tons of research to, to prove that, you know, this is not a good way to go. And yet we live such fast paced lives that it's about convenience many times. So there are there have been a couple of clever companies that have made fast food convenient that have made a lot of money. But there's been more clever companies that have made fast food convenient that also have phytochemical rich uh, diets. And Chipotle is a great example. Right. Um, so there's there's ways still to eat that's fast and quick and, you know, uh, on the move where we can still get rich phytochemical uh, responses from our genome. It, um, and you asked me another question. I, miss, I, I missed right. it. The, the diversity, the complexity of different compounds. Before you actually move on to it, um, uh, I was laughing because I uh, remembered someone's example that purple to, uh, Doritos, even though they look very interesting, our body is unlikely to recognize any of the compounds present in that, if you can call it food. <laughs> yeah, if you can call it food. Yeah, like... Uh, what are the what are the snack foods now that are almost zero calories or zero calories? Polyester sucrose, mm -hmm. right? Essentially, you're eating polyester. You're eating these these uh, polymers of plastic. That, um, by the way, the side effect can be diarrhea. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. We're so, I mean, and this really gets me into body image because, especially for the women in our culture. There's so much pressure to have the right figure, the right shape, the right size. And let's face it, estrogen in itself is a, is a fleshy hormone. It's a, it's a hormone that causes growth. Mm -hmm. And we want women to have estrogen, right, to be healthy. And, and, and skinny women are – there is an archetype that's naturally like that, but most women aren't like that. And especially as they start to age. And so one of the things I've said to many a woman sitting across from me when I was practicing is I understand that you're trying to lose weight. And let's talk about that. And let's talk about how realistic it is. Because if you're going to the gym and beating yourself up, 
you're probably going to fail in your eyes based on the model that you've got. But if you can just maintain what you've got and be at peace with that, you're probably going to have a much happier life. Um, and by the way, there's a there's a new there's new research out that shows that when men and women go to the gym, there's a really huge difference here. If they both work out really hard, a man walks away from that and his appetite doesn't increase substantially. A woman who's worked out really hard, that's gone in there and beat herself up, her appetite increases very significantly, whereas a male's won't. And so it becomes very difficult not to re attempt to replace those calories that she's burned. And so one of the things that's been showing is that a moderate workout does much better for women uh, than, a, than a very ferocious workout, a very rigorous workout in terms of, in terms of weight loss. Very interesting. So let's go back to the complexity okay. of the uh, plants and the compounds that we actually have in them. I remember someone was saying, well, if I take a vitamin C capsule versus if I eat an orange, how do you generally look at the complexity of plants and maybe looking at the specific plants? And then how do we sustain all this richness and how do we you know, prevent the loss of so many different plant species. Great. So let's go, let's go to the complexity. So one of the things that, um, and if I lose my way, bring me back, but one of the things that, that also really got my attention back in the early um, 21st century, that sounds funny, doesn't it? But uh, in the early 21st century, uh, Mark McCarty wrote a great article, and I don't remember the name of the article at this point, but he proposed this idea of uh, the phytochemical index. And in the phytochemical index, he said, we would have a way of essentially measuring the complexity of somebody's diet, how much phytochemistry it had in it. And then we could correlate that to disease outcomes. And he proposed that the lower the phytochemical index, the higher the disease status of someone would be, the, the, the worse the disease process would be. And the higher the phytochemical index, that the lower the disease effects or the, the better the health of someone would be. And this was all based on the fact that people were consuming not just vitamin C, for instance, but all the phytochemical matrix. And I, I'm going to talk about a phytochemical matrix in the sense of plants are a matrix of chemistry, right? And so every time we consume that, sure, the vitamin C might be there in an orange, but all those flavonoids that actually have been shown to, in fact, the first studies on, on scurvy showed that vitamin C alone didn't work. The flavonoids needed to be there with the vitamin C to actually cure scurvy. Those were animal models. Uh, but nonetheless, that, that vitamin C within that matrix of chemistry, phytochemicals, what, that, that was the real remedy, not the, vitam, not the isolated vitamin C in itself. And so we've, 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 in my opinion, we've lost our way in pharmacology because we have this belief system that one molecule is superior to a complex array of phytochemicals. And there are instances where one molecule approach to treating something can be very effective. But the side effect levels go way up. And so when we have a drug, let's say a statin, for instance, which comes from uh, mycelia, which comes from mushrooms, right, fungi. When we have a statin 
that's surrounded by other chemicals, other phytochemicals, other plant compounds, that that remedy actually might be more superior, have less side effects, and have a better long-term outcome than just an isolated molecule. Because if we go back to this idea of evolution, when have, when have human bodies, or even mammals for that reason, seen isolated chemicals? Only really in the last hundred years or so, right? We slowly started to isolate phytochemicals because we had a belief that it was going to allow control of dosing. And that in itself is a little misunderstood because let's, let's talk about caffeine uh, variability in terms of me metabolism. The caffeine variability is about a hundredfold between one individual and another. So this idea of control by using only one molecule when the inter-individual variability is so high between humans in terms of being reactive or uh, metabolizing something fast or metabolizing something slow is really misleading. Moreover, when we put more, when we take a molecule in a phytochemical matrix, those other molecules are active, and that's been shown over and over and over. They also may not only turn off genes or turn, uh, turn on genes, they also may delay the breakdown of, for example, vitamin C or caffeine. And so we, we come up with this very complex picture that is bewildering because it looks a little bit like a jungle, a wild jungle. But when we really start to look at the patterns within that wild jungle, within those phytochemical matrices that we take, that our ancestors, by the way, have been using for literally three to five million years, depending on who you read in terms of the, the age of our genome, that seems to be the smart and, in my opinion, the educated way to move forward, not the isolates. Now, the isolates are good for some things, no doubt about it. Some of them work very well. But the rate of, of adverse events from isolated compounds, from our, from our pharmaceuticals, is extraordinary. If, if you look at a um, number of different sources, it's anywhere from the first killer to the top 10 killer for uh, patients, properly prescribed pharmaceuticals. So understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying pharmaceuticals are bad. They are necessary, they work, and they can save lives. But when we depend on them for chronic diseases, I really feel like it's an attempt to affect something quickly that actually may be better off being affected in a slower, uh, more complex way, especially with chronic diseases. They're chronic. They're not going to go away tomorrow. And so if we can get in there and take a more complex remedy that turns on and turns off bunches of genes rather than just one or two that a single compound might, I think we end up with a much better approach. Um, Moreover, this idea of synergy, this idea of in, in the cannabinoid uh, realm now in the cannabis field, they're calling it the entourage effect. Um, this idea that compounds work together, I think, is a very solid idea, and it's been proven um, over and over. And there's a lot of writing on it at this point in time. Uh, if you read Jim Duke, the late Jim Duke, unfortunately, um, Jim's gone now. Uh, but also uh, Hildebert Wagner also has written a bunch on this. I've written a bit of, on it. This idea of synergy with 
phytochemical matrices with herbal medicines with food plants is actually really something that I think is up and coming. We've now got pharmaceuticals that have uh, more than one compound in them. For example, what is it? You'll probably know of this off the top of your head, given your field, but I think there's an ACE inhibitor with a statin now, right? They're, they're, they're doing the, this idea of putting multiple remedies together, uh, cancer cocktails for, for hard to cure cancers, um, antibiotic cocktails for, HIV uh, cocktails. yeah, HIV cocktails, uh, tuberculosis, right? Um, this idea is, you know, we think we're inventing something. No, this is what plants have always done. They've always had multiple compounds that act on a biochemical pathway and other biochemical pathways that may bring in a, uh, a, uh, a positive outcome in the end. Right. And I, I think what I'm hearing when I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing is that uh, human mind is trying to simplify things to make it a little bit to put it in neater, you know, neater little rows or uh, to just to, to understand this incredible complexity. And so there are clusters or there are networks of compounds that it's a wiser uh, approach to actually to look at these as such networks rather than uh, as uh, isolated thing. And I I think that one other element that you brought up is that the pharmaceutical companies are recognizing this and even realizing that some of the, you know, specific things that um, they may be manufacturing, if there are other compounds that are added, the toxicities go down and so many other things and plants do it on their own. This is how we, if we're giving a specific alkaloid or a specific agent, a specific uh, active constituent, if it is isolated, it is going to be significantly more toxic than it is in combination with other things that are diminishing the toxicity. I, yeah, I completely agree. And, and you brought up, you brought up a term, um, and thank you for doing that. That's very key to me and that's network. Because what we've done in the in the pharmaceutical in the pharmacological model, what we've done is we've isolated a receptor or an enzyme and a, and a single ligand or uh, a, a compound that can affect that enzyme, and that has been the unit of of pharmacology. But what we're starting to see is that cellular systems are really networks, and as such. If we're just trying to knock out one part of the network, one node is the term we would use in, in, in this network model. If we're just trying to walk, knock out one node, well, a smart, robust network, which human cells, human, this human system is, would just go around that network. And so the, the great idea of, of the great example of a network like this is uh, resistance to antibiotics. Mm -hmm. We try to knock out one target on a, on a bacteria. And it just it figures a way around it, right? And so the same goes in health. It's a network, and we're trying to hit multiple nodes. We're trying to hit multiple targets all at once to turn something on or turn something off. And that is a much more accurate representation of physiology and pharmacology than, um, than the idea of a single-target drug. Um, and again, single-target drugs have worked. But is it the smartest thing for chronic disease? For chronic disease, I think that our medicine should, should come closer to resembling foods than they should single isolated chemicals. And that's not to say, yeah, just eat an orange and you're going to heal yourself. That's to say you may need to concentrate the, the, the chemistry 
of a particular plant or a particular uh, fruit, and that can become a medicine in itself. Um, I am absolutely fascinated, but I wanted to ask you, what are you excited about right now in the uh, research in the plant science world? You know, what's really captured my attention, um, and I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the endocannabinoid system has mm -hmm. really captured my attention in a very profound way. And, and what's very interesting is if you look back at the research, the history of understanding, for example, cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2, and now there's a putative CB3, uh, GP, uh, GPR55, and there may even be a CB4, uh, GPR119, uh, but what's very interesting is all this research in terms of, for example, the uh, CB1 and CB2 receptors and then their, uh, then their ligands were only discovered since uh, really the 90s. And so what we see today is this developing model of the endocannabinoid system. And uh, when, so for those of you who stopped listening because I said cannabinoid, I'm not talking about getting high here. I'm talking about a basic function of the body that affects immunology, it affects neurology, it affects metabolism, it affects um, cardiovascular health, it affects gut health. So we have this basal system. If you picture it as a pyramid, the, the endocannabinoid system would be the base of that pyramid. And as such, it has this profound effect on everything that happens above it. Just as um, uh, a good, a good <laughs> being raised well would affect your success in, <laughs> in future life. In the same sort of way, if that endocannabinoid system is healthy, is signaling well, then we have the potential of having good neurology and uh, neuroprotective effects from our own endogenous, we're not talking about cannabis yet, just our own endogenous system. And so that's one of the things that's really got my attention. The, the, the problem here that scares me, honestly, is that there, most medical schools are not even talking about the endocannabinoid system. They don't even know what it is at this point. And one of the things that uh, there was a group of actually a, a physician and uh, some of his group actually called a bunch of medical schools and posed as interested students that were going to go to medical school. And they, one of the questions they asked was, do you teach the endocannabinoid system? And they got answers that were very hostile um, some of the time, that if you want to study that system, you don't belong in medicine. So I found that very, very interesting, that number one, most schools didn't even teach it. And number two, the reaction to it was basically one of ego. Well, I don't know about that, and it must be about marijuana, and therefore it's bad. And so that's one of the things that's really gotten my attention is this, this really profound signaling system throughout our body that affects all of our systems that has such an impact on our health, such a, such a basal uh, impact on our health. And so if the system is present in our body, then there are a lot of different compounds that could potentially be affecting it other than cannabis, I'm assuming. That's exactly right. There's many other compounds besides THC that affect the endocannabinoid system. Um, a lot of the spices that we use can affect the endocannabinoid system, especially CB2, which is more immunological. 
Um, some of the uh, echinacea has an impact on uh, CB2 receptors and has uh, an effect on the endocannabinoid system, not only CB2, but also PPAR. So there are a lot of different compounds that, uh, that we eat daily, not just medicinal plants, but in our foods that really do have, that modify our response. Uh, one of those being essential fatty acids. Um, fish oil and linoleic and linolenic acid do have an effect on the endocannabinoid system. Olive oil, oleic acid also has an effect on the endocannabinoid system. So, you know, what's fascinating to me is, is talking about arachidonic acid because if you look at a flow chart, a prostaglandin flow chart, arachidonic acid has been deemed a bad player, a bad actor, because it ends up in prostaglandin E2, which is an inflammatory prostaglandin, or leukotrienes are inflammatory. But there's a flip side to arachidonic acid. It's what makes our endogenous cannabinoids. It's what what's makes 2-AG, 2-arachidonyl glycerol, as well as anandamide, and therefore has a protective effect, an anti-inflammatory effect, a neuroprotective effect on our body. And yet I've heard so many people in the natural health industry basically say, oh, arachidonic acid is bad. I've even heard people say, don't eat chicken because it's high in arachidonic acid. It's the highest meat in arachidonic acid. Well, you're depriving your endocannabinoid system by doing that. And brings it to a, a broader perspective here is that most compounds have a, are a double-edged sword. They have a positive side and they have a negative side. And often we only see the negative side, as in the case with, uh, in, with this example. That's awesome. Thank you. So if someone in this audience is saying, okay, this is complex, but I really would love to learn a little bit more. Where would you go at this point? Maybe other favorite resources, other favorite places, other favorite writers that you would recommend? Uh, well, I think Pollen's got it right, Michael Pollan. If you want a, a lay version, I, I think Michael Pollan just nailed it on the head. I think he did really well. Walter Willett, I think, is another one. If you want to get into a little more um, proof-based uh, information, I think that Walter Willett's done a great job. Um, there's lots of herbalists out there that have a lot of great things to say, and I think you've had some of them on your program, so um, I'm not going to mention names there. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I consume a lot of literature, but un unfortunately most of it is, is scientific. And so uh, many of your listeners won't be interested in doing that. But, uh, I think Mark McCarty, uh, the person I mentioned that came up with the phytochemical index. And by the way, they've got proof of principle now on the phytochemical index. There's been a number of people that have taken that step and really created a phytochemical index survey and then asked, you know, followed patients and, and been able to show that uh, very clearly that inflammatory levels go down the more phytochemical index, the higher your phytochemical index is. In other words, the more fruits and vegetables that you're eating, you're less inflamed, right? Um, as well as other, other effects there. So, I think there's a lot of great authors out there. I, I certainly can't mention all of them, but um, I, I think the key thing that I would say, Lana, is is that people should really um, pay attention. Just listen to what your body's telling you, because unless you're completely disconnected from your body, and unfortunately some people are, um, and we're taught actually to be that way often, unless you're completely disconnected from your body, your body sends you messages, and count on those messages and listen to those messages. 
That's great. So I am super grateful for your generosity. And I know that we talked about a lot of different topics and uh, it's been just a fascinating discussion for me. Um, I have, uh, I guess, two more questions for you. One, is there anything that you would like to leave this audience with perhaps that we did not discuss? And then my second question is, if someone wants to learn more about you or learn from you, how would they do that? So what I'd like to leave uh, your listeners with is just the idea that you and yourself are this beautiful manifestation of energy on the planet. And you have a responsibility to go out and use it in a positive way. You can make somebody smile every day. And that in itself improves people's lives. And, and it's, not just, it's not just that subtle, but um, it can be. Uh, if, in terms of in terms of me, uh, I, you can find me on on my website. Uh, or well, actually, I won't be on that website, but there will be things that refer to me on that website. <laughs> sure. That's sure. at uh, phytochemks.com. Phyto is P H Y T O. And Chem, I I will make sure to link it to the show notes. Kevin, thank you so much again. It was absolutely fascinating. Thank, thank you, you. Lana. Thank I really enjoyed. It. Take care of yourself. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Kevin Spellman. You can find all the links mentioned during the interview in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 32. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. This is the best way to help others to learn about the Wellness Insider Network podcast. If you are not a part of our community, please join us at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash community. Wellness Insider Network group is where we talk about health and wellness related news, resources, and share recipes to help you have a more resilient and stress-free life. This episode is proudly brought to you by Spice It Up, creative cooking with herbs and spices. Spice It Up is a weekend workshop that Leslie Carrier will offer on June 29th through July 1st at her home and her organic vegetable and herb garden. Please check out the link in the show notes for more information. Thank you again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart. Be healthy. Be you.